Welcome to the Hand Tools and Techniques Woodworking Podcast. I'm your host, Bob Rosieski, answering your questions and bringing you tips and tricks to help you get the most out of your time in the shop. Have you ever wondered about hybrid filed saw teeth? Are you curious about the effects of cold weather on your glue? Do you want to try using a card scraper, but you're not quite sure where to start? I'll discuss these topics and more today on Hand Tools and Techniques. Hey everyone, welcome back to Hand Tools and Techniques. Thanks for joining me for episode 41 of the show for January 23rd, 2019. Before I start today's show, I want to take a minute to thank all of our patrons for your continued support of the show. And thanks to two new patrons this week, Elmer Nahum and Peter Fox, and to Ed Savensky for his generous PayPal donation. You know, listener support helps to keep the show going, so if you'd like to support the show yourself, just head on over to patreon.com slash brfinewoodworking. If you're already a patron, again, I thank you. And be sure to head on over to the Patreon post page to submit your questions and requests for this month's patron Q&A video that'll be coming out at the end of the month. So I had a little bit of excitement in my shop this week because I'm actually starting to build the shop. Uh, we, My brother and I did some framing um, and my wife and I did some framing and we got all of the interior walls of the garage put up and uh, secured into place and um, we did the, uh, pulled all the electrical lines. So I've got uh, a couple of 120 volt circuits now in the shop and a couple of 240 volt circuits, just in case I ever, uh, decide I, I need to uh, add any equipment to the shop. I'll have some 240 in there just in case, uh, we pulled all of the, uh, wire for the lighting circuit and, uh, we are just about ready to, uh, throw some insulation in there and get that inspected and then close up those walls. So, uh, that's kind of, uh, kind of exciting and not just for the shop space, but also, you know, that we're, we're moving along on the cabin cause that's kind of, uh, our next step is to get that garage ceiling insulated so that we can, uh, get some heat, turn the heat on upstairs in the cabin, um, and be able to lay the hardwood floors and build the, the, cabinets and and get all the finish work done so uh kind of kind of getting excited starting to uh, get into the home stretch on the cabin there so uh, and i've also been working on a a new scraper wallet so uh, not exactly woodworking uh but shop related nonetheless and if you've uh if you follow me on instagram you've probably seen some of those pictures as well um, and that's actually, uh, the scraper wallet is inspiration for today's main topic. So we'll talk about that a little bit later for now. Let's get into our questions for this week. First one comes from Liam O'Neill. Liam says, I heard that you're using the 12 inch Gramercy tools, bow saw blades on an antique bow saw. Did you retrofit the saw to accept the pinned blades? I recently purchased an antique bow saw. The blade that it came with seems like it's too long. So I cut it shorter and drilled a new hole for the pin. Seems like 11 inches pin to pin is the right length for this saw. In the future, should I cut a longer stretcher to allow for use of the longer Gramercy blades or are there sources for 11 inch blades? 
Um, so Liam, I think you're going to be disappointed trying to look for 11 inch long blades. In fact, I think you're going to be disappointed trying to find, um, turning saw blades anywhere except for Gramercy. Um, I am not sure that you're going to be able to find them anymore. There may be some UK, uh, tool dealers that you might be able to find some blades, um, but they're most likely going to be 12 or 15 inches. Those are the two most common sizes that I've seen turning saw blades in. Um, chances are you're, you're not going to find an 11 inch uh, blade. If you need, if you want to continue to use those blades, the 11 inch blades, you're going to be stuck with making them yourself. Um, you can cut bandsaw blades into 11 inch lengths and use those. Um, but in my opinion, the teeth on bandsaws, on bandsaw blades are just not cut right for use in a bow saw. So, um, I don't particularly like that, that option. Um, I would probably just end up making my own, uh, 11 inch saw blades. Um, so if you're not really looking to do that, um, I would say, yeah, your, your best bet is going to be to remake the stretcher of the saw, which should be a pretty simple project. Uh, make it a little bit longer so that the saw can handle 12 inch long, uh, 12 inch long blades. And you can modify the, the existing pins by uh, sawing and filing a slot in them so that they can accept the Gramercy style coping saw style blades with the cross pin in it. Um, and, or you can use the, um, you can actually buy a set of Gramercy pins if you wanted to and make new handles for the saw. Lots of different options there. Um, or like I said, you can look for, um, 12 inch bow saw blades from other sources. Um, your best bet again is probably going to be to look at some of the tool dealers in the UK. I know they, they often will still sell, um, bow saws, turning saws. So you might be able to find some there. I'm not sure that there's too many places, maybe the best things in, in Virginia, um, might have turning saw blades. I'm not sure. Uh, but there aren't going to be too many places left. Um, in the UK, in the US that are actually carrying bow saw blades other than Gramercy. And like I said, maybe the best things um, in Virginia. Um, and look at Woodjoy tools as well. I, I don't know if they're still making saws and making tools, but I know they made a bow saw and uh, sold blades for their bow saw. I don't remember if it was 12 or 15 inch, but um, I believe they used to sell uh, bow saws and, uh, and blades. So you could check there as well. So our next question comes from Nathan Fine. Nathan says, for a birthday present this year, I'm getting uh, getting the Bad Axe Sash Saw. And I had a couple of questions, if you don't mind. First, what's your opinion on hybrid teeth filing? I was going to get the saw in crosscut, but the hybrid, uh, hybrid tooth looks interesting. Second, do you have any suggestions about the other options that affect performance? So on hybrid filing, um, I'm actually a big fan of it if you are in a shop that pretty much uses a single back saw for, for everything. Um, it's actually a, a pretty good filing. I, I don't want to say that bad Axe necessarily invented the hybrid filing. Um, I've seen some reference though. I can't recall exactly where, um, to, to different rake and flame angles, you know, for, you know, and combination tooth filings, um, for old saws. So I, I don't, I'm not sure that bad Axe necessarily invented the hybrid, but they definitely were the ones to make it popular. Um, and it is a, a popular tooth filing and it is, 
certainly something worth looking at if you are not ready or not willing to spend the money on two separate dedicated saws, one for cross cut and one for rip. Um, I'm personally in the camp, you know, I like to have two separate saws. I, I like to have a cross cut, um, back saw and a rip back saw. Um, and that's partially due to the fact that I like my rip tenon saw to actually be a bigger blade. Um, because I find I often need to saw deeper, um, on, on larger, larger tenons, like what you might do for maybe a dining table or a workbench. Um, you'll often need to saw deeper tenon cheeks than what a sash saw might be able to get. Um, so I like a slightly bigger rip saw in my back saw. My, um, the back saw that I use for rip for tenons is actually 16 inches long and it's, uh, it's a little bit deeper blade than, um, my sash saw, which is 14 inches long and has a, a shallower blade than the, the tenon saw. So I like two separate saws, but, um, if all you can afford to get right now is a single saw, um, or you just want to spend, you know, money on one really good saw and you're just going to focus on using that one saw and not worry about getting dedicated saws, that hybrid tooth pattern is a really good idea. And if you're not quite familiar with the hybrid, uh, the hybrid pattern, what it essentially is, is, um, it's a, the rake and fleam angles are filed, you know, kind of between a dedicated cross cut and a, de a dedicated rip tooth so that the saw does a, uh, a very good job actually of making both types of cuts. So it allows you to go from, you know, cross cutting shoulders to ripping tenon cheeks, uh, without switching saws. So it's, it's really nice. It actually, if you get used to working in that way with a single saw, it allows you to work pretty quickly because you don't have to have two saws on your bench. You don't have to worry about switching saws between cross cut and rip. Um, and it's actually kind of a, a nice way to, uh, to work. Um, I'll, I'll frequently do that when I'm traveling or teaching or doing demonstrations or whatever, just because it's faster for me to not have to switch saws. Um, in those cases, I just use my crosscut filed sash saw and it rips kind of slow. So, um, it's not my preference, but, uh, if you've got a hybrid filed saw, they work, they work really well for what they're designed to do. Now, in terms of suggestions for the other, uh, other options that would affect performance. So, um, a lot of, of the things that bad Axe offers really have nothing to do with performance. Um, you know, it's a lot of it is just aesthetics. So the, the looks of, um, you know, what color saw back you want, what kind of saw bolts you want, you know, what color, what type of wood you want for your handle. That's obviously not something that's going to impact your performance. The number one thing, you know, that matters in the performance of the saw is how well it's sharpened. Um, and going with a bad X saw, um, that's not going to be an issue. The saw is going to be well sharpened. Um, so you're not going to have to worry about that. The other thing for me that makes a difference in how a saw performs is the, um, how the handle fits your hand, how comfortable it is. Um, you can, you can saw perfectly fine with a, you know, the plastic handles from the hardware store. But if you're going to be doing it for any length of time, those handles can get a little bit uncomfortable and blister inducing after a while. So a comfortable handle will go a long way to making your sawing more enjoyable. I wouldn't say that 
um, any of those features are going to do anything to enhance the performance of the saw in terms of how it cuts. Um, the wood's not going to know the difference, but um, things like, you know, a nice handle, you know, nice aesthetics on the saw is going to make using the saw more enjoyable for you. It's going to make it a, a more pleasurable user experience. Um, so, you know, just pick, you know, make sure you get a handle. I know Bad Axe will offer different size handles. So get one that is fit to your hand um, and get something that you think looks nice and you are going to be in for a treat. You're going to have a, a saw that will last for many lifetimes um, of service and you're just going to have an absolute joy using that tool. So our next question comes from uh, Randy Murray. Randy says, I work in a shop that is sometimes heated while I'm working, but what are the effects on my glue when my shop begins to cool into the 30s and below after I leave the shop and turn the heat off? It's a cinder block standalone structure with no insulation. I generally use PVA during cooler temps. Let's say the glue has four good hours to set before the temperatures drop. So I'm, I'm not a, uh, well, I, I shouldn't say I'm not a chemist. I am. I do have a degree in chemistry. However, um, I don't have any background in the chemistry of PVA adhesives. Um, however, I can tell you what I have observed um, in my own shop. So glue, PVA glue is, is fine if it freezes. Um, if you can warm it up, sometimes what happens once the glue freezes is that it will get a little bit thicker. Um, and sometimes you can just add a little bit of water and, and it's fine. Um, so the, the glue freezing isn't too much of an issue unless it freezes and thaws a whole bunch of times. And then you just may end up with kind of a gloppy, uh, thick, chunky mess that you won't be able to use. But I wouldn't be too concerned about the glue bottle itself freezing, um, and thawing. And just as long as it doesn't do that too many times. In terms of the glue setting up, if you can heat your shop to a decent, comfortable temperature, maybe in this, you know, in the high 50s, low 60s, if you can get it to that temperature and the glue has sufficient time to dry, really it only needs about a half an hour um, for that glue to set up. What I would say is to, to look at your clamp time. Most PVA glues require about a, a half hour clamp time. So you can, you know, um, get that, get your, your shop up to temperature. And, um, as long as the glue has enough set time, you know, that clamp time, as long as the, the temperature is high enough, um, you know, your shop shouldn't be dropping from sixties to the, you know, below the thirties in that half hour. It's probably going to take a little bit longer than that. It'll probably take a couple hours to get down to below freezing. So I think you're probably fine as long as the, the shop is warm enough when you do the glue up. Um, you'll know because the glue will really have problems flowing um, and it just won't seem to want to bond. If it gets too cold, it just won't seem to want to bond at all. You could have it clamped up for half an hour and um, you know the glue just won't, won't tack up. Um, so as long as the glue is bonding, and you're coming back the next morning and things aren't falling apart, I think you're probably fine. Um, but like I said, I, I would try just to get it up to a comfortable temperature before you do 
your glue up. Um, and one thing you could do too is to take that bottle, even though it's not hide glue, we often do this with hide glue, liquid hide glue, but um, even for your PVA, it will help. Um, if you could put the bottle of glue in a like a pot of hot water to bring up the temperature of the glue before you use it, that could help too. It's going to help the glue to flow better. Um, it's going to help with that initial tack and that initial um, drying and curing time while the, the project's in clamps. Um, and then after that, I think if it gets cold, I think you'll be all right. Um, worst case, if it's a, something small, you could always bring it in the house, um, you know, glue it up and bring the bring the assembly in the house if it's a small box or something like that and let it cure inside the house um, where, you know, where it is warmer. Um, if it's something big, obviously that could be problematic, but, um, you know, for smaller stuff, I, that's what I would probably do is just to bring it in the house just to be safe. Uh, otherwise, I think as long as the um, temperature is somewhat comfortable, uh, when you do the glue up and you have that, you know, that half an hour of clamp time while the temperature is still decent before it drops, I, I think you're probably fine. And our last question for this week comes from Luke Wiseman. Luke says, thanks for your article on sharpening auger bits. It's about the best one I found on the subject. Well, thanks, Luke. I was really looking for some information on the correct angles to file the edges to. Right at the end of your article, you mentioned the possibility of filing the bottoms of the cutters. I do this if I have to, sometimes quite a lot, to clean everything up or if there's an insufficient distance from the bottom tips of the spurs to the bottom of the cutters. I aim for about 70 or 80 degrees from the vertical for the bottom cutter and about a 30 degree included angle, like a plain iron or chisel. I don't measure each time, it's mostly by eye. What do you do about these cutter angles? Uh, so Luke, I probably do roughly the same as what you're describing there. I don't measure the angles, I've never measured the angles, but what I do is to shoot for a 10 to 15 degree clearance behind the cutter. So. Um, there's been a lot written on clearance angles, so and I don't want to get too into it here, but suffice it to say that you don't want the bottom edge of the bevel of the cutter to be parallel to the wood surface. That bottom edge of the bevel of the cutter, whether it's a chisel, a plain iron, whatever, needs to be inclined um, you know, about 10 to 15 degrees above the surface of the wood in order for that tool to cut. So whether it's an auger bit, whether it's a plain iron, you need that space between the bevel and the wood surface. And that's known as your clearance angle. And I like to shoot for about 10 to 15 degrees clearance angle um, in order to allow the cutting edge to engage and cut um, and not be pushed out of the cut by spring back, by the, the compression and spring back of the wood itself. So, um, in that case, you know, that, that 10 to 15 degrees is shooting right for that, you know, 70 to 80 degrees, what you're talking about, 70 to 80 degrees from, um, from vertical. So, um, so I think you're doing just fine with that, you know, shooting for that 10 to 15 degree, 10 to 20 degree, uh, clearance angle and a 30 degree included angle on the, um, edge itself. You know, I sharpen my plain irons probably between 30 and 35 degrees in my chisels as well. So they seem to cut fine at that angle. So I think you're doing just fine with that uh, same angle for your auger bits. So that's going to do it for our questions for this week. As always, if you have feedback, questions, or topic suggestions for the show, record a voice memo on your phone and email it to bob at brfinewoodworking.com. 
You can also leave a voicemail at 276-601-3123, or you can go to brfinewoodworking.com contact and fill out the contact form. So today's main topic is all about card scrapers. Uh, I want to talk about things like tips for sharpening them, using them, storing them. Um, and thanks to Ethan Sincox for the topic suggestion. Ethan saw my Instagram posts on making my new scraper wallet, and he actually suggested the topic, which I, I thought was a good one. So, uh, so that's what we're going to talk about today. So let me first start by saying that if you're not using card scrapers, you need to be. Um, they are, in my opinion, they can be like the woodworker's magic wand. Um, they can get you out of so many little tough situations. Uh, they're absolutely worth learning to use regardless of, of how you choose to do the majority of your woodworking, whether you use primarily machines or primarily hand tools. Scrapers are one of those tools that cross the lines um, you know, because they're so useful to you, no matter what, how you like to mill your lumber or how you like to finish your lumber. Um, they are way faster than sanding for uh, removing tool marks, whether it's from a, a machine or, um, you know, you know, from a, a rasp or a file. You know, if you're uh, you're shaping a, a cabinet, a cabinet leg or a table leg, you, maybe you've got some saw marks on there or, um, you know, marks from a, a rasp or a file. The scraper will take those out in no time compared to compared to sanding. I mean, sanding would take forever compared to taking it out with a, a scraper. And even if you want to sand afterwards, the scraper just speeds up the process incredibly. Um, you can practically ignore the grain direction with a, a well-tuned scraper. Uh, not completely, but just about ignore grain direction. Um, and you can create easy, you know, easily create custom-shaped scrapers for curves or chair seats or whatever with just a file. You can completely reshape the tool and turn it into something that's going to be more useful for the task at hand uh, with just a file. You can make them from old hand saws, so it's not like you got to go out and spend a ton of money uh, to make to, to get good card scrapers. You can just buy uh, shim stock, 1095 spring steel shim stock, you know, from any metal supplier and have a lifetime supply of scrapers. Uh, personally, I, I pretend to like thinner scraper steel. Um, I'm usually working with steel that's about 25 thousandths of an inch thick or thinner. Um, for smaller scrapers, sometimes I like even thinner than 25 thousandths, maybe 20 thousandths of an inch. Um, but I will use the thicker scraper, scraper stock or saw steel on occasion for um, scratch stock blanks. The uh, the thick stock makes really great blades for scratch stocks. Some people like thick card scrapers for um, rough work, for you know because you can take a really heavy shaving with a, a thick card scraper. It's much it's much easier to do so than it is with a thinner steel scraper. Anyway, um, I tend not to use my scrapers for heavy stock removal. Um, so I don't like them to be too thick because I like to be able to to bend them up and and uh, put a good bend in them to make sure that I can um, not dig the corners in. But you can also just use a file and round off the corners of the scraper as well uh, if you like thicker scrapers, and uh, and that will help you too. 
you know, sharpening scrapers uh, seems to be one of those things that, that can baffle a lot of folks. Um, it seems at first glance that there's a lot of steps involved and a lot of finicky finickiness. I don't know if that's a word or not, but I'm going to use it anyway. Finickiness involved in uh, sharpening and setting up a scraper, but it doesn't have to be that way. Um, you know, if you're just using a scraper for rough work, filing the scraper is enough. You know, if you, you can file it, turn a little hook on it with a burnisher and uh, go right to work. But for your finest work, for your finest smoothing work, taking out those um, last little scratches and and really get in that finish ready surface, um, you really want to go beyond just filing the edge. So let's talk about for a second how we go ahead and prepare a scraper and, and sharpen a scraper. So the first thing um, that you're going to want to do is to make sure that edge is flat and square. Now I do this by filing the edge, but you don't necessarily have to file the edge every time you sharpen. Um, if you're just doing a maintenance sharpening and you've only burnished the edge a couple times, you may be able to just re-burnish the edge. Um, but if you've burnished a few times and um, the hook is starting to get brittle or it's work hardening that edge and you just can't really um, you know, get to good steel anymore, just getting a little bit too brittle from work hardening, um, you're going to have to file to remove the old burr. The problem that um, a lot of people have is that they, they tend to just go back to the stone or they want to uh, just roll a new edge with the burnisher. And the more you deform and roll that edge with the burnisher, the more the edge gets work hardened. And the burr itself tends to get brittle and it can snap off, it can break in places. So in order to get to a fresh edge, you need to file past that work hardened steel. And it really only takes a few strokes of a good sharp file, but you do need to make sure that your file is, uh, is sharp. If it's not, it's just going to skate across the top of that burnisher. So don't use a cheap file. Get yourself a good flat mill file um, and use that. To, bur to file the edge of your scraper. And you want to file it as square as you can. I just do it freehand. Some people will use um, like a saw jointer. But I tend to just do it freehand and file the edge nice and straight and flat and square to the faces of the scraper. Once you're done with that step, you can go ahead and burnish if you're just doing rough work. But for your finest work, you're going to want to polish the edge just like you would a plain iron or a chisel. Um, so I start with the faces. The faces are kind of like the back of a chisel or plain iron. You really only have to polish them once. Um, after that, it's just maintenance work. So if you take your faces of your scraper, and really it only has to be you know a half inch or so um, around the scraper edge. It doesn't have to be the entire face of the scraper. Take it up through the grits on your water stones, oil stones, diamond stones, whatever you use to sharpen your chisels and plain irons. Take that edges of the scraper, the faces of the scraper, up through those grits and polish the edges, um, polish the faces adjacent to that edge. You should have to do that in four places because you've got two long edges on your scraper. So you're going to want to polish the, uh, the two long faces adjacent to each side of each edge maybe for a half inch or so. Um, that's a one-time operation. You're done once you do that. 
Then if you take a block of wood that's square and put that on top of your stone and use that as a guide to polish the edge, the skinny little edge of the scraper. And then again, it's not going to take much because it's you're not removing a whole lot of steel. Um, and it's not it's not a really hard steel like a plain iron or a chisel. It's much softer because it can be filed. So um, you should be able to remove the steel relatively quickly and bring it up to a nice polish. Um, and again, take it all the way up through your finest stones, just like you would do with a chisel or a plain iron. And then on your highest grit, just wipe off the faces once you've done the edge, just to uh, to get yourself a nice square edge that meets uh, nice and polished. Now you can use the scraper just like that. You don't even need to burnish it. But if you really want that ultimate edge, you're going to want to give the edge a little bit of a burnishing treatment and that's going to give you, uh, it's going to give you a little bit more aggressiveness in the scraper. Um, and it's, but it's also going to give you a little bit more control about uh, how you remove material. Now, when it comes to burnishing, there's a couple things to keep in mind. First, whatever you're using as a burnisher needs to be harder than the scraper. If you look at a lot of old books, a lot of times they'll recommend using uh, the back of the chisel or maybe a screwdriver or something like that. That may have been fine for a lot of the older older scrapers or scrapers made from old saws. Older saw steel tends to be a little bit softer um, in general, not always, but in general, t older saw steel tends to be a little bit softer than the steel that we are using for saws today. Um, which is the same steel that we use for card scrapers today. So using a chisel or a screwdriver is not always going to work. Sometimes, uh, and especially if it's a modern screwdriver, um, you know, they just don't make them like they used to. The steel is kind of soft um, and it's not going to, the steel is just not going to be hard enough to deform and roll the edge of the scraper. So I really recommend that you get yourself a purpose made uh, scraper burnisher and a good one get one from a good reputable company um, look at what Lee Valley has to offer um, I have one that I use it's it's a carbide burnisher and carbide's great for this as long as it's highly polished um, you can use um, high-speed steel drill bits sometimes work if they're hard enough um, or carbide drill rod uh, will work really well, but it has to be polished. You want it to be smooth. You don't want to have any defects in it. Um, and you're going to want to use a very thin coat of oil on the burnisher or, or on the edge of the scraper when you do this. Now, when it comes to burnishing, if you've got yourself a burnisher that you know is harder than the edge of the scraper itself, when it comes time to burnish, the, if there's one tip that I could give you, it's to lighten up on the pressure. 90% of people who burnish scrapers tend to use entirely too much pressure. Um, I, I have to laugh when I think about this sometimes because um, I once watched a presentation of someone um, who had made a, a jig for um, sharpening and burnishing card scrapers. And this jig essentially had a three foot long wooden arm. It, it, if you can imagine... Um, a paper cutter made out of wood, you know, like what a what your old high school paper cutter looks like, with the the big 
you know, two foot long blade on the edge um, that's hinged. Well, that's sort of what this this jig looked like, but it was um, the arm wasn't on a hinge that just allowed it to move up and down. It allowed it was almost like it was on um, like a snipes bill hinge, like a cotter pin almost where it could um, it could swing left to right and up and down. And with this jig, the the gentleman would clamp his scraper um, in the um, in the jig and bear down on this three foot long wooden arm with so much pressure and he had a, a carbide rod glued to the underside of the um of the wooden arm and that's how he was burnishing his scrapers bearing down he didn't file them he didn't um, sharpen them on stones or anything and he just would bear down with this carbide rod on the edge of the scraper and that's how he sharpened them um, and it was i mean it, it was almost uh painful to watch just because you could hear the carbide galling and grinding into that the edge of that scraper and it just you know you know it it just was not it just was not doing the tool justice um but uh, you know that's kind of an extreme example but the the point is a lot of people just use entirely too much pressure when they are burnishing so here's how I like to do it now keep in mind what I'm typically shooting for is a scraper with a very, very fine burnished edge because I'm using these tools for final surface prep before finish. I'm not using them to remove tons of material. I have other tools that do a better job than a scraper at removing a lot of material. What I want these scrapers for are the is the finish work. So put a little bit of oil on the edge of the scraper, lay it flat on the workbench, I put my thumb on the back of the burnishing rod and I lay the burnishing rod flat on the face of the scraper and about 10 times I'll run it back and forth along that edge of the scraper with moderate pressure. Um, think about the amount of pressure that it might take to hold, um, hold the head of a screwdriver into the slot of a screw and that's about the amount of pressure that we're, that I'm talking about here moderate amount of pressure on the face of the scraper again a little bit of oil just to make sure that the it doesn't gall or, or scratch the steel back and forth about 10 times with the carbide with the burnisher flat on the face of the scraper and what this does is it draws the edge out gets it ready to be rolled over into a hook once i've done that on all four faces I hold the scraper in my hand. I don't clamp. I don't usually clamp it in a vise. You can if you want. And I hold that burnisher at an almost 90 degree angle. It's a very, very, very minor deviation from 90 degrees perpendicular to the edge, uh, to the faces of the scraper when I'm burnishing. Some people talk about 5 degree hook or 10 degree hook and they, they angle the burnisher down um, away from the edge. I try to hold it almost as parallel as I can. Um, I want barely any noticeable deviation from um, perpendicular to the scraper faces as I can get with that burnisher. And very lightly, I mean almost with little more pressure than the weight of the burnisher itself, run it along the uh, each corner of the edge maybe 10 to 20 times very lightly, like I said, almost little more than just the pressure, the weight of the burnisher itself. 
on each one of those edges uh, 10 to 20 times. And again, at barely any angle at all, almost completely perpendicular to the faces of the scraper. Um, do that on all four corners. And that's it. That's, that's a burnished scraper. That's going to give you a scraper with a very, very fine hook, but a very sharp edge because we've gone through and polished it with all of our stones. Um, and that's going to allow you, by not using a whole lot of angle, it's going to allow you to keep that scraper fairly vertical when you're using it and not have to really angle it or bend it over in order to get it to engage. Um, and that, for me, I find that gives me the most control. And that's kind of how I want to um, approach my work is with that scraper almost vertical. And by burnishing at almost no angle at all, um, it gives me just the, the right amount of tiny little hook that I want to be able to take really, really fine scraper shavings get everything really nice and smooth and polished. So um, again, if you're having trouble, lighten up on the pressure that you use when you're burnishing because I think most people use entirely too much pressure when they're rolling that hook. Uh, drawing out the hook, again, when the scraper is laid flat is one thing, um, but when you go to roll that edge, when you go to actually turn the hook, you want almost no pressure at all. Um, and in my experience, that has given me the best result when I use almost no pressure at all turning that hook. Finally, let's talk for just a second about storing your scrapers. Uh, you heard me mention earlier on that I'm making a new scraper wallet. Uh, that's one that tends to be happens to be my favorite way to store my scrapers is in a, a leather wallet. Um, you can also store them, you know, just in a, a piece of wood with some slots cut in it. The goal is to keep the edges of your scrapers from touching each other. Once you've prepared those edges and burnished them and polished them, um, if they bang around and against each other in a tool chest or a box or a drawer, you're going to damage those edges. And these are finishing tools. Think about your finest smoothing planes. If you just put the blades of those finest smoothing planes in a drawer and let them all bang against each other, um, those edges, they're not going to do too good of a job at smoothing boards. Um, if you let those sharp edges bang against each other, scrapers are no different. They may seem, you know, like this, um, this simple, um, you know, arcane tool, but when you go through the trouble to polish them and burnish them and get a really nice edge on them, you want to keep that edge. So protect the edges, put the put them in a, take a block of wood and make some saw curves in it and stand the scraper blades up in those saw curves just to keep them separated. Um, or, you know, there are uh, commercial wallets. You can buy scraper wallets from Lee Nielsen and Lee Valley. Um, you know, use those. I use a custom wallet because I have, um, I had a, a set of small scrapers that I made that I use quite often that I like to keep in the same wallet. So nobody, none of the commercial wallets work for the set of scrapers that I have. So I'm, I'm making my own, but you know, and that's always a possibility as well. If you're, uh, if you've got any experience with leatherworking at all, or, or even, you know, if you're, if your wife sews, you can make one out of canvas, um, whatever. It doesn't, doesn't matter. You just want to keep the edges of those scrapers separated and keep from banging around with each other. And it's going to make the edges last longer. And, uh, you're going to appreciate it when you go to pick up one of those scrapers to do some final smoothing work. Um, and it's got a, a good, nice, sharp, polished edge that doesn't have any nicks or dings in it that are going to leave ridges. So that's going to do it for this week's show. As always, I want to thank you all for joining me and allowing me to do this. I'm extremely grateful for all the support you've all provided. 
And as a reminder, please send in your feedback, questions, and topic suggestions because this show depends upon your input and participation for its content. Just record a voice memo on your phone and email it to bob at brfinewoodworking.com. You can also leave a voicemail at 276-601-3123, or you can use a contact form on the website at brfinewoodworking.com slash contact. If you're looking for the show notes for today's episode, you'll find them at the website at brfinewoodworking.com slash htt042. In the show notes, you can find links that I referred to in today's show, and you can also find links to follow me on all my social media accounts. Finally, if you'd like to support the show, you can become a supporter on Patreon and get your questions answered in the monthly Q&A video, or you can make a one-time donation through PayPal, and you'll find links to do so in the show notes and at brfinewoodworking.com support. So thank you again for listening, and until next time, stay sharp, everybody.